Welcome to Share Ed Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with Robin Hood Multi-Academy Trust and Gateway Alliance. Hi, I'm Helen Martin, the CEO of Gateway Alliance. And I'm Steve Taylor, CEO of Robin Hood Multi-Academy Trust. Today we're going to be talking to Catherine Morgan, the Capacity Improvement Advisor at the Teaching School Hubs Council, about effective professional development in schools. Catherine brings a wide range of expertise at a local, regional and national level in professional development and we hope that you gain real value from her insights today. Hi Catherine and welcome to Podcast CPD. Hi Steve, hi Helen, great to be with you. Hi Catherine, welcome today. Um, Just to kick start then, do you want to tell us a little bit about your career today, post-teaching? I know you've obviously had a range of different roles in a number of different schools, but um, from when you moved into like a leadership role within school and then out of school in some of the national roles that you've held? Yes, absolutely. So um, my experience as a teacher had been predominantly in schools and special measures requires improvement. So when I went over to work as trust leader for professional learning and development, uh, once again, I was working with a range of schools who were being supported either to develop um, from requires improvement or to uh, get out of special measures. And it really afforded me the opportunity to recognise just how fundamental, high quality, evidence-informed professional development is as a tool to support both the school as a whole, but also individuals within those schools um, to develop their teaching practice and do so in a way that was less about high stakes and high threat and more about really supporting people to grow and develop in their careers uh, with the intention of obviously raising the standard of education for children. From my trust role, um, I was really interested in the design and facilitation of professional development programmes. So I moved on to Ambition Institute where I was Associate Dean and I was there briefly overseeing some of their middle leadership programmes. I was really fortunate to work with some fantastic colleagues such as Harry Fletcher Wood, Peps McRae, Jen Barker, Tom Reese, a really fantastic environment to be surrounded with such um, fantastic thinkers in the field of teacher education and leadership development. And I was able to really understand the mechanisms of instructional design and also really high quality facilitation so that we can really maximise the impact of professional development programmes. From there, I went on to the Teach Development Trust, where I was responsible for designing their brand new suite of leadership national professional qualifications. I was able to draw upon my experience of being a trust leader and working in some really fantastic schools in a range of different contexts and blend that then with some of the expertise I developed whilst working at Ambition Institute. But the TDT also brought a completely unique element to my practice so far in as much that They really focus on school environment, climate and culture. Often those words are used interchangeably and we don't necessarily have shared collective definitions of what we mean by that. But essentially what we're talking about is how are we ensuring that schools have the types of systems, processes, structures and culture within them to make sure that when we're engaging with professional development, teachers and leaders can really get the most out of that. So again, fantastic opportunity working with a really wide range of TDT network schools, understanding what it's like to implement a range of programmes and a really humbling experience, actually, because these types of system wide roles Uh, remove you from the classroom and remove you from a trust climate Um, and it's important that you then make as much opportunity to go back into schools and work with leaders so that you're really 
understanding what it's like in a day-to-day basis in a school and a a trust and not taking anything for granted and and making any assumptions that in reality um, are are barriers to effective PD. So to summarise, you've been and worked at some of the top places nationally and over the past five or six years, five or six years, a bit longer? Um, 2019, so that academic year I came out of the trust. Okay, so, okay, we're into the fourth year then. You've been exposed yeah. to some of the um, highest quality levels of professional development. So that's at a, a wide national scale. If we take that down to a local level for um, for leaders listening who are still in school, in terms of highly effective professional development, you talked about moving away from high stakes, high threat. What what do you think are some of the principles that underpin um you know, effective professional development within schools? How do you see it moving forwards? Great question, Steve. So I think we're in a really interesting era, which is often regarded as the golden era of CPD, because we are now in a place where schools, multi-academy trust, local authorities, the government, the department, all recognise that actually if we are going to ensure that we have the highest standards in education, it begins and ends with the quality of teaching. And I was very specific there in terms of saying quality of teaching as opposed to quality of teachers. And I think that's a fundamental shift that for far too long, we've been grading and judging people when actually what we need to really focus on is individual knowledge, expertise, skills in the classroom and make it feel much more developmental. So in terms of what I I would regard as some of the most effective practice for uh, CPD at a local level, I would apply the same principles for teaching students as I would uh, for teaching adults. And I think that's because for far too long, we've uh, given teachers and leaders, adults in school, a really... uh, inadequate diet of professional development often it's required people sitting together in school halls all having the same thing Uh, there's a really famous quote by a leading researcher in New Zealand called Helen Timperley she was responsible for one of the uh, biggest literature reviews back in 2007 and in that literature review she quotes a teacher saying that they hope that they die during in-service training because the transition between life and death will be seamless and I use that a lot because I think it captures uh, certainly my experiences early on in my career and 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 I think uh, when I share it with colleagues in a range of different circumstances it, it never fails to draw a smile and I think that's because many of us will have been inducted into the profession and ended up working in schools with very well-intentioned leaders who haven't had the time um, to be able to really think carefully about the knowledge and skills they want to develop in their teaching workforce, really having a, a tight focus on student outcomes. So from a local perspective, recognising then that student and adult learning is broadly the same, it's recognising what's the need What's the difference, the impact that we want to have here? Testing that out, testing those hunches. Don't make assumptions. As Vivian Robinson would say, don't bypass the teaching team. Ensure that professional conversations are fundamental to testing out what those hunches are and getting clarity about impact. Is it a behavioural issue in the classroom? Is it a curriculum issue? Is it a pedagogy and instructional issue that needs to be developed? And making sure that nobody feels that they've been bypassed in the process. Then I would encourage colleagues to be uh, in, enter into the research phase where 
they're looking at who might be best placed to deliver that professional development. Is there the internal expertise that they can draw upon? Or is it something that they need to go outside externally and commission somebody like the EEF, one of the research schools, perhaps one of the big lead providers now, so Ambition Institute, the TDT, Evidence-Based Education, Teach First. We're absolutely awash with some fantastic uh, providers of professional development at a national scale. But I'd also encourage colleagues to think about their local teaching school hub or teaching school alliances that are still very much operating. And there's enough space for everybody But essentially, the key thing is to think about who is best placed to help you solve that need that you have in your school that you've tested out with your staff. Then prior to implementing that PD programme in your school, whatever that might be, whatever the duration, and I'd move away from standalone one-off sessions and think more um, about a programme of sessions and a series of inputs, I would then make sure from an organisational perspective Do people have enough time to engage with this? What are we going to stop doing so that people can engage with something new? Far too often, we keep just adding things on to teachers and leaders' um, plates, really with the best of intentions and wanting to raise educational standards. But if we don't take things away, then actually PD becomes something that people resent because it's just another thing for them to do. And that's where at the TDT, we really focused on those organisational systems and processes. So looking at people's timetables, Is there any way of finding time within the school day that we can free people up to engage with professional development so it's not always happening at the end of the day? How can we ensure that if people are going to engage in PD, then perhaps we're going to free them up from doing other things? And really making sure, again, that we're consulting with ta- with staff and really helping to, uh, like using their insights to understand more about what needs to be in place, those supportive structures, so that they can really maximise the engagement with what they're doing. There's a huge cost to teachers in terms of time and workload when it comes to engaging with PD. And I'm always really mindful that the argument could be that their time could have been better spent somewhere else. So actually, if it's not high quality PD with really supportive structures, then I would have been better marking my books, uh, looking at assessments, working on the curriculum or even just having a life and going home earlier. You know, there's a well-being element to all of this as well. So once you have those supportive systems in place, You're then thinking about implementing the delivery of that program. And once again, making sure that if you have somebody external who's delivering that, don't just abdicate responsibility for impact. That needs to be an ongoing conversation, checking in, follow up, follow through and recognize the importance of deliberate practice. So if I've engaged with something specific, perhaps a national program, How am I then being given the opportunity to deliberately practice that in my classroom, back in my school? Is there opportunity to work with colleagues, peer support, coaches, instructional coaching, mentors, you name it? There's a whole range of um, additional resources and tools that need to be in place then for me to actually put that into practice and do something with it. And then finally, really think about the link up here with performance management or appraisal, whichever you call it so that they become conversations that are driving career development as opposed to jumping through hoops at the end of an academic year just to get something signed off to show that you've 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 given value you've had a worth in the school for that year because i absolutely believe 
that nobody goes into school to do a bad job. I think there's a range of factors and influences that can cause people to become a little disillusioned. But I think we need to go in with the mindset that everybody has the potential to keep getting better. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. There's so much there in terms of what makes great CPD. And you have highlighted some of the barriers. I wanted to dig into some of those challenges a little bit more if we can, because I know that you know, time and money is obviously always, you know, stated yeah. by schools in terms of struggles to engage. But I think also where you've talked about setting up those systems and structures within schools, particularly around coaching and mentoring, you know, and having that ongoing conversation, post some engagement with some um, specific content potentially to ensure that that's yeah. embedded. Um, there's quite a lot there that if schools haven't got those systems in place that they need to, you know, think through and develop and also to think about, um, developing the capabilities of staff in order to undertake those sorts of mentoring and coaching roles. So yeah. in your experience, it'd be great to sort of um, think through now some of those challenges and where schools have overcome those, what sort of systems they've been able to put in place and where you might start in terms of developing those. Great question, Helen, because it's really easy if you're uh, thinking about improving your provision, your culture, your approach to professional development, and you hear uh, my overview just then about some of the things you want to think about, it can feel overwhelming and daunting as to where to start, can't it? And I think uh, based on my experience of working in a range of different primary schools and then across primary and secondary as part of the trust role, one of the key things that we need to do is understanding individual context within that school. And I go back to the professional conversation piece because that's one of the easiest things that you can do. Um, but often we think that our approach to conversations is just the same in any context, but it's not. It's about inquiry. It's about building up the type of trust where people don't feel that they're going to be um asked to engage with professional development because they've done something wrong. This is about looking at how we can improve um, colleagues' capabilities um, in a way that makes them feel motivated to do so. I think in terms of if you're trying to develop the individual capacity of a team to help deliver PD in your school or across a trust, don't underestimate the importance of observing other schools and going to talk to other schools. And I think that those conversations alone aren't going to help um, support people to develop. It's about going in pairs, going with other people and really being able to talk about in a sort of metacognitive way why people have done the things that they have. And we're really fortunate that we are a very collaborative, uh, I think, collaborative education profession. I think People are very keen to help one another, to share resources, to share expertise. And I know in some of the schools where we were building a CPD culture from scratch, it paralleled to having conversations with staff. We then had a series of middle and senior leaders who we had uh, identified as being integral to helping us build this CPD process, CPD approach, sorry. And we afforded them the opportunity to be able to engage in a range of really high quality programs. So I would really encourage people to do the brand new MPQs that are available, freely available um, for the next couple of years. They're freely available anyway. And the reason for that is they are fundamentally different from the previous ones. I did my MPQML and SL and often felt like I was jumping through a hoop and, and doing a change project at the end just to have it signed off. Whereas these are much more centered in the day-to-day -day doings of middle leaders, senior leaders, 
And there are specific specialist MPQs to help you lead teacher development or to lead teaching in a school or across a trust. And I think if you're someone who's wanting to start uh, redeveloping a CPD culture, I would identify your bright spots, your, your talent within your uh, middle leadership and, and senior leadership team, and think about engaging with those freely available national programs because they will be able to then, uh, they will be exposed to the leading research that we have on how you lead really effective teacher development or how you lead teaching. And there's also specialist MPQs for leading behaviour and culture in school. And I think there's a danger of us feeling like we have to do everything from scratch. But we're now really fortunate that there are a range of different programmes that are available. Um, And the key thing there, though, is making sure people have the time to engage with it and building it up over time. So even just starting something very simple like a CPD library in, in the staff room. Um, or providing people with the opportunity to access podcasts like this um, and curating things so that people don't have to find things out for themselves. Actually having somebody within your school who's a designated person to oversee um, the professional knowledge of that school is a really great starting point. Thank you, absolutely. I think the value of networking and looking outside at what other schools are doing and then bringing that practice back in and, um, you know, using that in order to develop what works for you is really, really important. So thank you. I think it's an interesting, um, I think it's a really interesting place we're in at this moment in time because never before have we been in a position where professional development is so accessible, you know, like you say, podcasts, uh, digitally and, and that side of things. And what I'm interested in are your thoughts on if you've got a learning culture in school, you've got the core offer of professional development, which people can follow. But then there's the there's the opportunity, isn't there, for people to go further and to go deeper. Right? Yeah. So to people fo- to follow lines of inquiry with that learning culture. It's about how we I'm interested in your thoughts about how we encourage that. Because often that is people doing it in their own time. So how do we do that in a way that doesn't make people feel as though they're being pushed into doing more and more learning in their own time? How do we get that balance that we want them to pursue it and it it actually feels like a pleasure and something positive rather than another thing to do? So again, another really interesting question, Steve. Um, and I've given this some thought as well, because I feel like it's actually a more broader question about how do we ensure that our teaching workforce, leadership workforce really thrive and flourish so that by the time they get to the end of a working day, they don't feel frazzled, they yeah. don't feel overwhelmed and they don't feel like they just want to go home and sit in a dark room. That might have just been me, but I know that I would often get home and think, oh my gosh, I'm absolutely shattered. The alarm goes off at six o'clock the next day and you're back on it aren't you it's a really relentless profession to be part of the best profession incredibly rewarding but let's be honest it's it's hugely challenging and I think that as teachers and leaders you have to make lots of sacrifices don't you so for me I feel like we need to think about the school day people's workload the amount of responsibility that we're placing on people so that if they are going to uh access professional development outside of the working day they actually feel that they have the motivation to do that and they have that intention as well and I think that it's inspiring that sense of lifelong learning isn't it which sounds really cheesy and a cliche but I'm in the middle of my master's it's been hugely challenging starting a new role relocating and doing a master's 
Um, I'm doing it over three years for that reason. But nevertheless, it's still been quite a challenge to juggle different assignments and different things like that. And I thought to myself, why am I doing this? Well, on many occasions, I thought, why am I doing this? But I kept coming back to, I just love learning. I've got so much curiosity and, and an interest in how we do things better in school, because it's not okay that we still have a recruitment and retention uh, problem. You know, we're investing more than we ever have before in, in national professional development programs. We've got a completely new revamp suite of MPQs, specialist MPQs, leadership MPQs. We've got the National Institute of Teaching, the EEF. We've got, as I've said before, I won't go on a range of different fantastic organisations and networks, as Helen said. But still, we've got a very frazzled workforce on the back of COVID. But also before COVID, um, we need to get to a place where less is more. And as schools and as multi-academy trusts, we can't solve all of the problems that society has. I think we need to be much more focused about the ones that we've got influence on and those that we haven't. Yeah. I think collectively, we need to uh, really ensure that the department um, and other organisations such as Ofsted are really aware of the reality of, of the context that teachers and leaders are working in so that professional development is at the top of everybody's uh, to-do list, not because it's just another thing to do, but because people are motivated and inspired to keep learning and to keep getting better. And it comes back to that point I made around not believing that anybody goes into a school wanting to do a bad job. Uh, we don't get a second chance, do we? It's the type of profession that children get that one one chance at that lesson. We don't get to we don't get to do it again, and it's absolutely fundamental to um, their education that we we, we get it right. Um, so how do we then get people when they're really tired to think about doing a master's, to thinking thinking about doing perhaps something else? because there's a range of different options available. It is a real challenge, but I suppose thinking about my experience as a leader, I do think we have a lot of wasted time as well. And I say that sort of curling up my toes underneath the table because I'm sure many leaders will be on the call thinking, she's having a laugh, aren't you? You know, there's no wasted time in my school day. Um, but I think sometimes we get caught up into the trap of doing things because we've always done them that way. And so I guess in schools I worked at where we had to find time for professional development because people just couldn't do anything more. We totally rethought the way we approached the school working day, the timetable, um, and really looked at how we could give people time back. And we got to the point, believe it or not, at Cozel Heath in North Solihull, great school to go and look at to see the type of professional development culture I'm talking about. And we built that from scratch school, absolutely on its knees. I won't even go into some of the chaotic <laughs> things that happened, but now it's firing on all cylinders. It's the type of school where people would go in on a Saturday we would arrange for some fantastic uh, external expertise to come in and deliver to school. It wasn't compulsory. People could attend if they wanted to. We made sure that people knew it wasn't a, you can attend if you want to, but actually if you don't attend, you're going to be noted down anyway. This was truly transparent and, and nobody uh, you know, felt like they had to. And we just ended up with this drip feed approach with more and more people joining us. And not just because they felt they should, but they then started requesting for things. And then we looked at how we could give some of that time back um, during inset days. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can do. And I know every school context is different. But if there's something I've learned, it's don't assume that our timetables are as efficient and effective as they could be. I think 
all, there's always some time that can be clawed back. Yeah, totally. I think um, what you were saying there about you talked through originally the process of going through identifying the need, doing the research in terms of do we really understand that very well, and then looking at the systems being in place before we implement. Can we talk a little bit about evaluating and assessing impact and going back to yes. so we've obviously you know looked at what's out there, we've looked at developing the capacity and the systems within um, our school setting, we've engaged with networks and providers um, you know in order to be able to access that. So then reflecting, you know, how do we join that circle back up and thinking about evaluating the impact and you know revisiting the need and and that you know, finalising that cycle and before you begin again, as it were. Um, can you yes. tell us a little bit about how that looks, you know, from your experiences? Absolutely. So I'm going to pose a question to both of you now, no pressure. But yeah. thinking about uh, professional development that you've engaged with, particularly at the start of your careers, how did people seek your opinion of the professional development that you accessed? What was the one of the main ways they did that? Feedback forms. <laughs> Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes they'd ask for a comment. The deliverer who delivered it would ask what I thought of it, and, uh, and of course, the, the person who's delivered it is asking you. <laughs> so sometimes you don't know them very well. You're not going to be honest, are you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the challenge, isn't it? So they're often regarded as happy sheets that come round at the end of that session. They're given to you by the person that's just delivered the session. Nine times out of ten, it's right on the end of the session. So if it finishes at five pm, the happy sheet goes out at five pm. Don't know about you, but nine times out of ten, I'd put anything because I just wanted to get out of there. So we historically have absolutely undervalued the way that we evaluate the impact of professional development. It's always happened at the end. And that's why we lead to people often saying, I want to do a course because that local authority does a great lunch and you get lots of lovely tea and coffee and biscuits. But very rarely when I started my career um, were people talking about the learning. So I remember as an NQT, I got given loads of different things to go on, one day courses. And I remember my uh, NQT mentor at the time, as it was called, instead of uh, ECT told me oh you'll love this because they do a really nice lunch and you get to go and sit in the conservatory I'm not sure if anybody recognizes which authority that is because Solihull so oh I've just said it <laughs> I was ah, going to say yeah. Steve you were in Solihull lo- local authority as well um but I think that's about us recognizing that evaluation doesn't just happen at the end it happens at the beginning in as much that we go back to that need analysis what is it that we want to improve We think really carefully then about planning backwards. So I've used Thomas Gusky's five levels of professional development evaluation. There is some uh, critique of Gusky's um, approach, but I would say that we are as yet to find an approach that is better. And I would always welcome critique for anything that we do. And I think as long as you uh, make you create a process that's fit for purpose for your culture, for your context, and you make an effort to think about the impact. That's a really good starting point. So Gusky has five levels and you start at level five. That's the student need. Is it a curriculum need? Is it a specific subject need? Is it a behavior for learning need? You're identifying, if you like, the theme, the area, the content of the PD. You're planning backwards then and thinking specifically about the knowledge and skills that you want to let want to develop in whatever area it is. That's level four. Level three then is really thinking about um, the individual, uh, like say the systems, the processes, the organization, um, 
How are we going to support people, as I said before, to engage in the professional development? Number two, then, is really thinking about that people learning. And then number one is what we would have called the happy sheets, where you're actually getting participants' views. So it's not that questionnaires and surveys aren't important, but it's recognising that they are one tool in a much broader um, suite of evaluative uh, mechanisms that we can use to try and understand impact and also try and move away from evaluating impact at the end of a session let's go back then next half term and think about what's been applied in the classroom let's go back after a term let's go back after two terms let's go back after an academic year recognizing that similarly to students learning teachers need time again as I've said before to deliberately practice to apply it um, and sometimes it's not going to work and that doesn't mean that what they've accessed is wrong, but it could be that there's a barrier within the school, within the trust, that's preventing people from being able to put it into practice in a way that leads to the intended impact. So, again, those ongoing professional conversations are really important throughout that process. And I think then a final layer I would add is that Professor Rob Coe, who's uh, from Durham University and is now at Evidence-Based Education, being responsible for some fantastic reports over the years, such as What Makes Great Teaching, which is now the Great Teaching Toolkit for Evidence-Based Education. Uh, he speaks really uh, clearly about evaluation and, and essentially says it's really hard. It's really hard to do well, but schools can ask themselves some simple questions. What does success look like? Um, how will I know when I've achieved it? And what would have happened if I hadn't done it? So what he means by the third question is that I suppose there's an opportunity cost and it's back to if I didn't engage in that professional development, am I saying that my classroom practice would be worse? Um, am I saying it would stay the same? So really making sure that we are... Uh, interrogating the worth of the professional development and not being magpies and being attracted to the latest shiny thing because the school down the road is doing it or the other multi-academy trust is doing it or we've seen it on edu twitter really being very concerning uh, when we're thinking about well actually what would happen if we didn't engage in this pd helping us to sharpen up to make sure yes the value is there the worth is there we need to engage with this can I just say, I think that's really interesting to, to, to hear you say that. And as, you, as you're talking, I'm also thinking around the fact that for a lot of professional development, we, you've, got, you've got the delivery of it and you've got the receival of the professional development. You know? yeah. And I think that there's, there's a, maybe this is my naivety, but it feels to me like there's a gap in the process, which is that actually there's a lot of power in co-construction. And yes. that, some of the very best professional development I've been involved in. I also felt that in working hand in hand with the with the delivery team, I was also improving improving and refining the concepts moving forwards. So not only was I benefiting professionally myself, I also felt a sense of altruism because I was helping to build a concept that was going to benefit people in the future and be even better. So it was evolving and it wasn't static. Yeah. And I think that. That's a, that's there's definitely more can be done in that range because teachers want to make a difference and they want to have they are altruistic. I think if you are in some professional development, but you know that what you're doing and feeding back is also driving improvement in the future, well, you're actually co-constructing, aren't you? And I think that is so powerful. You probably miss it a little bit, or am I being naive? 
No, I don't think you are by being naive, Steve. And without like throwing in a whole load of, you know, academic jargon here, what you're talking about is the motivation that we have to engage with professional development, both on a personal level, but also wanting to support our peers. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with a book called um, The Hidden Lives of Learners by Graham Nettle. And that book explores the peer to peer culture in any classroom and is probably the number one book that has affected my understanding of both teaching, but also teacher education. And it highlights that actually uh, the peer-to-peer culture in a classroom is far more important, um, far more influential than anything the teacher can do. So the the peers, students are way more bothered how they look in front of their peers than what the teacher thinks of them. And he really draws attention to the fact that actually that peer-to-peer culture absolutely helps or hinders the quality of learning that happens in a classroom and I think that's the same for teachers or leaders or adults working in a cohort I think collectively we want to uh, support one another but we're also really aware of each other and I don't know about you but I've definitely been in cohorts before where perhaps somebody hasn't thought very much of the present of like the facilitator and very quickly then you either get people that agree because that person's got some sort of power or influence or they become a bit of an outlier but it can have a knock on a knock on effect about how we receive that professional development so you're absolutely right there there is there's a huge amount to think about in terms of the peer culture within adult professional development the motivation to do it the altru- altruism to want to support your colleagues and then i think that sort of academic Uh, language I bring in here is self-efficacy and collective efficacy so um, self-efficacy is about our individual belief that we have the resources um, the opportunity to keep improving that we don't feel that it's a lost cause that there are too many barriers I'm never going to improve I'm never going to get better and some people can mistake it with growth mindset but I'm talking about something very different I'm talking about that self-belief and self-determination which links the motivation that I can keep improving collective efficacy then is on a group scale so as a group in a school and special measures we collectively felt that we could improve we could improve the school raise the standard of education and get out of special measures and that's really powerful if you're trying to drive an improvement culture in any organization when you get that collective the critical mass yeah. truly feeling that this is something that they're in control of they're in the driving seat that's way more powerful than someone else coming in calling the shots giving them very little time to implement it and then suddenly either moving the person on or just dismissing uh the school as basically i don't know perhaps it needs to join somebody else because it, it's not going to be able to do it on its own so I think you make a really good point and it's a point that connects with other other areas that we want to consider such as efficacy and motivation yeah absolutely thank you are we going to move the conversation on towards the national picture helen yeah absolutely so we've mentioned quite a number of key players out there and so i'm just thinking from an individual school perspective what's the what's what in your opinion is the best way to begin to engage with the range of national um organizations and providers that you know are remitted to support schools in terms of teacher professional development we've talked about the national institute of teaching there's the teaching school hubs the research schools the curriculum hubs 
sort of, you know, what's the best approach in order to engage, in order to be able to utilise that system and, and the, the, the groups and the individual organisations that are out there in order to have the best impact on, on me as an individual school or our school and our staff? Yeah. Okay, so I think um, I'd start off, first of all, um, at an individual school level. So I'd think about any expertise that I have in my individual school in the first instance, because I think there's a danger to dismiss that and look outward when actually there could be people in in your in your school or your trust that are really well placed to support with with a particular um, program of development. If that's not the case, um, I then start locally and think about um, is there anyone in your local authority or a local network such as a teaching school hub or a teaching school alliance um, or a multi-academy trust that could be operating within your area that will also have a professional development offer. And the reason for really focusing in on the local offer is because let's not underestimate the uh, influence of context mm -hmm. and people within your locality will have a really good understanding of the set of similar barriers that you're facing within your school um, and recognizing that yes there are national barriers that all schools will face but there are also uh problems or challenges that are uh, unique to individual localities and it's about building that local collective um, capacity as well and so I then move out to the national picture and think about uh, through conversations perhaps with my teaching school hub or local authority who might be best placed then to support with a specific national program and the the value of a national programme is that we are moving into a, an era where um, organisations like the Education Endowment Foundation are essentially quality assuring the application of research in the design and facilitation of programmes. And it's far more robust than we've ever had before. And again, um, I could ask both you and Steve to think about previous professional development that you've had in your career. I'm starting to laugh because I had some crazy professional development where I've gone back into the classroom and I've done some crazy things um, with the best of intentions because I thought that was the right thing to do. Um, but looking back now, I think we've potentially been sold some snake oil. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I'm sure people had the best of intentions, but we were relying upon folklore, really expensive consultants coming in, delivering for a day and then going off. Whereas now, if you've got a national program, um, so from any of the MPQ providers, Teach First, Ambition, uh, TDT, you know that you're going to get rubber stamped quality. You know that it isn't going to be one off. You know that it's going to be really high quality, evidence informed, and you get to work with people from across the country. And that's fantastic because as much as there's a need to work with people in your locality, let's not also forget how important it is to learn from people on the other side of the country who are in different circumstances. I've been in cohorts of people who've been in really rural schools and had my eyes open to the fact that there are some colleagues where there's only four members of staff in a whole village school and they're teaching three-year groups in their class. And the way that they design their curriculum is phenomenal. Um, so definitely engage with those national providers, um, but make sure that you're being very concerning in terms of the impact and the difference that you want to make. But you're right, you're right Helen, the challenge is that we're almost inundated with options and it's about making a really discerning choice and that's where I really would encourage um, colleagues to talk to 
local teaching school hubs, teaching teaching school alliances, because they, for many reasons, are now very well placed to be able to direct people to other national organisations and they'll do the hard work for you in terms of selecting. Can you say anything about the National Institute of Teaching? Because that's quite new out there in terms of their role and remit and how they fit into that national context. Yes, so they're really new. Um, and the National Institute of Teaching, um, I'm not sure how familiar colleagues on the call will be with them, um, but essentially they now are a group of multi-academy trusts who are working collectively to create the type of um, organisation where there will be different campuses across the whole of England that will work collectively to research um, teacher development, leadership development in the classroom. So they are very much centred on better understanding the implementation, the research for implementation, how we get the most out of professional development, um, but doing so in a way that is engaging teachers and leaders. It's a really exciting opportunity because up until this point, we've, we've uh, relied upon universities, academics who are outside of of schools and trusts to conduct research, you know, distill their uh, their findings and uh, present some recommendations. Whereas now that's going to be led by a group of uh, multi-academy trusts trying to put this process in the hands of, of the profession so that once again, it is something that's done with us as opposed to done to us. They're going to play a significant role in teacher education. So the early career framework and uh, providing schools with the opportunity of, of essentially uh, completing their early career um, framework uh, programme with with the National Institute as well, will also be available. And the challenge for us now as a sector is ensuring that each one of these fantastic organisations, teaching school hubs included, which is obviously where I'm working at the moment, work in collaboration as opposed to competition. I think there is enough space, there's enough need for everybody to be working, but we need to make sure that we do that in a way that's really cohesive, that schools and trusts don't feel overwhelmed with choice um, and that we get to a place where we're able to collaborate and pool resources so that there's nobody left behind and that there's nobody in a single school who feels they don't know where to start because actually there's a range of people and a range of programs that are available to help them establish a really fantastic culture of professional development. I think you're giving us some super advice there because ultimately it's like, you know, when you go and look at how many podcasts are out there now, education ones, this thousands yeah how do you know which what's a good one to listen to and how's not and you you know you might land on a few but actually you said something earlier in the interview around curation and um and curated routes that people are highlighting what's good yeah. i really like what you said around you know start locally start within your school and then work your way out and get to the national i think that's good because it's a systematic approach and like you say the teaching alliances and 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 teaching hubs can signpost to national programs and take some of that hard work out. So I think that's really great advice because for people who haven't engaged in it, especially, you know, I'm thinking about the past few years with COVID, if people have been caught up in the in the graft of getting keeping the school going and, and haven't engaged in professional development as much as they could have done, maybe looking out into the picture is slightly overwhelming because there's just so much. Yeah. 
I think what you've said is great, great, solid advice that stands the test of time, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, well, I, sorry, I was just going to say, I think sometimes I refer to our current context. The danger is that it can appear like an all-you-can-eat buffet where you've got so many dishes available to you. And I don't know about you, but in an all-you-can-eat buffet, I go wild, get all sorts of random stuff on my plate, doesn't necessarily complement Eat, like it's yeah, yeah. A bit of a mess yeah. I, like absolutely love it but then I start to feel a bit poorly because I think oh I'm not quite sure that Chinese and curry quite went together throw in some Italian you know like it can be it can be a bit of a mess and you need to take a much more discerning approach to how you choose your dishes because just because it's available doesn't mean that you need it your mind might say loads of food I want it or in fact it's probably your stomach that says loads of food I want it but actually your head then should be saying no you don't need those chips and actually let's uh let's let's not go overboard and I think that's something that we need to we need to apply here when thinking about all of the professional development that's available to us let's not leave anybody feeling slightly poorly afterwards because perhaps they've made a, a wrong choice about their selection you know what you are uh, you're a font of knowledge and all this sort of stuff it's been um, it's been great chatting to you as always Taking it back to, because, you know, you've got so much knowledge. I don't think you probably appreciate how much knowledge you've got, you know, for, for Joe Average leaders like us listening to you, you know, I, I'm not I'm not on that level. What would be great to know to bring you back down to my level so I don't feel slightly overawed by what you've been saying, right? Over the past few years, in terms of, um, you know, overcoming professional barriers, what have, what's been what's been a challenge for you personally? I love this question and I really want to emphasize before I answer it that I recognize I'm in a really privileged position where I chose to come out of a trust role with the intention of building up my knowledge and expertise around professional development, leadership and teacher education, but I am not doing the doing at the moment in a school or a trust. So my respect is totally to you and Helen, because I think that there's enough space for us all to have different knowledge and different expertise here. And we've got the same mission, haven't, haven't we? So it's very kind of you to say that, Steve. But, you know, by no means um, do I feel like I'm the finished article. So very happy to talk to you about lots of challenges that I've had in the last couple of years or in, across my whole career to date. Um, I could tell you some very humorous stories about being a deputy head and a few wet Friday afternoons and a school trip that particularly springs to mind. But in terms of my current role and the last two years, I think something that I have come to really realise, and I actually thought that I had it sussed, so it was quite humbling, is that communication is really hard. It's never cracked. And even when you think that you're a really good communicator, a change in perhaps remote working and having to communicate with colleagues now, holding online as I do, can actually put you right back at the start again. So some of the barriers that I've overcome in the last couple of years is recognizing that trying to build and develop a team virtually is really hard. That actually being face-to-face and in the same room with someone, another human being should never be taken for granted. So yes, it's great that we can all, all work virtually. I'm talking to you now from Swansea, you're in the West Midlands, and 
that's great. But actually, from a team perspective, you have to work even harder to check in with your colleagues, to over communicate, never take for granted that just because something's been said on a Zoom call or in a Teams meeting or a Teams chat, that it's been received in the way that you would have expected it to and I think when you're in a room with other colleagues you can see how something lands because of facial expressions body language it's so much easier whereas in a virtual team oh my goodness you can make assumptions and nine times out of ten those assumptions can be wrong and I think that um, I've come to realize that actually I'm a big believer in over communication uh, which is something that Patrick Glencioni and his five dysfunctions of a team talks about well I've ramped that up a notch in my current um, context uh, to make sure that there are no assumptions made, no one gets left behind, and that we are all uh, very much on the same page, even though we might not be in the same room. Great. And I think that's, a, I think, you know what, what a fantastic way to end. You've absolutely. been absolutely phenomenal to listen to. Thanks so much for your time. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Really, really interesting. Lovely to see you. We really hope that you enjoyed listening to the podcast today with the inspiring Catherine Morgan. The main takeaway for us is that professional development should lie at the heart of everything we do at school and there are so many avenues and pathways to go down. This podcast has been brought to you via Robinhood Multi-Academy Trust and Gateway Alliance. Both are committed to working and improving the life chances for all children through developing staff. See you next week.